And make no mistake, the conspiracy could have worked and it might work next time. Pay attention to who they're lining up to count the votes. Think about whose votes they don't want to count. Good advice, Jake. Let's talk about it, shall we? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's one I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yeah, hi. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR and Minneapolis St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk. And all of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com, where we continue to celebrate our 18th year of troublemaking and muckraking. Won't you help join us by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Okay, well... Well, 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 well. Hi, Desi Doyen. <laughs> that huge, did you hear it today? Did you hear it? Did you hear that huge, loud, collective sigh of relief? Well, I heard it from me. You heard it from you. I heard it <laughs> emanating from the East Coast, the West Coast, the Midwest, everywhere else. All corners of America. Yes, coming from uh, Democrats and liberals and progressives and legal experts. Hell, that huge, loud sigh of relief you may be hearing uh, may come only f only alone from our old friend, uh, legal and Supreme Court journalist Mark Joseph Stern. <laughs> Could have been just him today, uh, as he had been furious, furious uh, at Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer in recent months over all of this. But today... Well, everyone may all be finally exhaling a bit. Liberal, if fairly centrist, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer is retiring, giving President Joe Biden an opening he has pledged to fill by naming the first black woman to the high court. The 83-year-old Breyer had, uh, has been what AP and even Mark Joseph Stern describes as a pragmatic force 
on a court that has grown increasingly right-wing in recent years. AP calls it increasingly conservative, but I believe they are wrong, at least by the definition of conservatism that has been in play for most of my life up until, I don't know, about, what, 15 years ago or so, when conservatives stopped being conservatives and started becoming Republican authoritarians while clinging to the conservative label because it remained popular among among their followers, which does, in my opinion, a great disservice to actual conservatism. Nonetheless, uh, I digress. Breyer <laughs> has spent many years trying to forge majorities with more moderate justices right and left of center. That effort, however, has largely failed since Sandra Day O'Connor stepped down and was replaced by Sam Alito. Mark Joseph Stern notes today that after Justice Sam Alito replaced O'Connor, the court began reversing centrist precedent that Breyer and O'Connor had crafted together, leading Breyer to lament from the bench, quote, It is not often in the law that so few have so quickly changed so much. He said that from the bench at the end of the first full term without O'Connor sitting on it when the court had sharply restricted affirmative action with Sam Alito's vote to help them do so. Breyer's centrist approach failed even further after Anthony Kennedy was replaced by the far-right Neil Gorsuch rammed onto the bench. Please do not forget, after Republicans did away with the Senate filibuster for Supreme Court justices because those Republicans were unwilling to find anyone who could get 60 votes in the Senate. The approach of uh, Breyer then radically failed, of course, once Ruth Bader Ginsburg had passed away and was replaced just eight days before the 2020 election by Amy Coney Barrett, who was also rammed onto the bench despite the fact that Mitch McConnell blocked Barack Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland to the high court for a full year, claiming that in an election year, the voters, not the president, should be able to decide who they want in such a critical lifetime position. In other words, the McConnell rule for the Senate is whatever he wants it to be. Whatever he wants, whenever he wants it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, how many Democrats are dumb enough not to realize that by now? Talking to you, Joe Manchin, if you care. Anyway, Breyer has been a justice since 1994. He was appointed by President Bill Clinton. Along with the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Breyer opted not to step down the last time the Democrats controlled the White House and the Senate during Barack Obama's presidency. Remember, Breyer is now 83 years old. Ginsburg, for her part, died in September of 2020. And then President Donald Trump was able to fill that vacancy with Coney Barrett, cementing the Republicans' corrupt, stolen, and packed six to three right wing majority on the court. Breyer's departure uh, expected over this coming summer, sadly, will not change the six to three conservative advantage on the court because his replacement will be nominated by Biden and almost certainly confirmed by a Senate where Democrats have the slimmest of majorities. So at best, we will end up with a six to three right wing advantage on the court. If, of course, 
That is, they can find someone that both Lord Manchin and Lady Cinema are willing to approve. It also will make uh, Justice Clarence Thomas the oldest member of the court, incredibly enough. He turns 74 in June, and yes, I remember well uh, staying up and watching those uh, hearings in the U.S. Senate uh, for the uh, controversial, to say the least, confirmation of Clarence Thomas, headed up at the time, as you may recall, on the Senate Judiciary Committee by some Democratic senator by the name of Joe Biden. Remember him? Whatever, Whatever happened to him? Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said Biden's nominee, quote, will receive a prompt hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee and will be considered and confirmed by the full U.S. Senate with all deliberate speed. Well, that is good. And it's just one of the reasons why the last time uh, we asked Mark Joseph Stern about uh, Breyer's decision on this program, At the end of last year's Supreme Court term in uh, early July, Mark was furious that Breyer had not yet announced his retirement, concerned that once again he would, you know, stay too long and die on the bench only once Republicans had regained control of the uh, Senate majority. Desi, you pulled some of the clips from our conversation with Mark on that. He he was none too happy at the time, as I recall. He was not. Breyer can step down at any time, and I encourage him to. Yes, if you're please. listening to this right now, yes. Steve, please step down at this moment, uh, contingent upon the confirmation of your successor. So uh, whether he needs to uh, do so on the uh, confirmation of his successor, uh, that's another matter. Hopefully they will confirm his successor before well, before the November elections, but even before Breyer officially leaves at the end of the term. Uh, and in case folks haven't noticed, because I don't think really that most people have, we have now reached a point in this country when a Republican Senate majority, if they can get it back, will simply not allow any Democratic president to replace someone on the Supreme Court. Anywhere, you know, no matter how long they have to keep that seat vacant, they will do it. If they win back the majority this November, if there is a vacancy on the bench after that with Biden still in office, even if that's two years or six years, they will simply refuse to fill that vacancy and will instead leave the court, you know, as it is, uh, as a six to two GOP majority if they have to, just as they did when uh, McConnell refused to fill, uh, or in, I suppose it could be a five to three majority, depending on who dies, but they'll just leave it vacant, just like they did when McConnell refused to uh, fill Antonin Scalia's seat and effectively changed the size of the Supreme Court for a full year, rather than allowing Democrats to take their rightful majority on the court at that time. I asked Mark about that as well last July, and He went even further. Is it fair to say, as I believe you've written, that we're at the point where a Republican Senate will never seat any justice to the high court if they control the majority in the Senate uh, and that uh, appointee is uh, named by a Democrat? 
not only do I think that's true, that a, a Senate Republican majority will never confirm another Democratic president nominee to the Supreme Court, I don't think that a GOP-controlled Senate will ever again confirm a Democrat's appeals court nominee. Yes. Um, when Republicans seized the Senate in 2014, they, offens- they effectively stopped confirming Obama's many nominees to many open seats mm-hmm. in the federal courts of appeals. For Obama's last two years, he was only able to get maybe two or three confirmed, a Mm -hmm. tiny number. I really don't think that that will ever happen again. And uh, I think that Stephen Breyer is delusional if he thinks that a Republican-controlled Senate will allow Biden to name his replacement, which is, again, why I think if he's listening, he should step down right now, because these justices will be serving into the 2050s. Trump's justices are in their late 40s and early 50s. They could be on the bench for another 30 to 40 years. So, yes, uh, good news today. A huge sigh of relief from Democrats and non-wingnut legal experts today like Mark Joseph Stern. As to Breyer's legacy in his final years on the high court and his failure to win the compromises that he had once successfully won with more moderate partners on the right side of the bench, Mark writes today that Breyer was simply unable to meet this moment in American history. He said in recent years, it appeared that Breyer held onto a fantasy of the Supreme Court that no longer existed. He really believed that he could reason with his hard right colleagues to secure trade-offs that would serve the greater interests of the court and American democracy. Time and again, he tried to prove his good faith by voting with the conservative wing. Time and again, his Republican-appointed colleagues rebuffed these olive branches, plowing ahead with their agenda over Breyer's increasingly desperate pleas for moderation. The justice's endless yearning for compromise rendered him a rather ineffective leader of the liberal wing after Ginsburg's death, writes Mark. He frequently seemed adrift, asking rambling questions at oral argument that lost their purchase with the conservative faction long ago. His dissents were hazy and incongruously mild, even in huge cases involving abortion, COVID, capital punishment. No one would envy Breyer's position, but it's hard to deny that he failed to meet the moment. The court's progressive block needs, he says, a powerful dissenter who pulls no punches, condemning the majority's lawless excesses with blunt candor. Yet even as the court blew up Breyer's, uh, Breyer's most prized precedents, he remained oddly muted, says Mark. He even published a book defending the court whose trajectory he decried, then embarked on a publicity tour to shore up SCOTUS's reputation and legitimacy. When the nation needed brutal truths about the Republican Party's capture of the courts, Breyer provided laughable bromides about the judiciary's independence. He adds, uh, he concludes here, Justice Elena, Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor have brilliantly filled the void that Breyer left, but they deserve better. After Breyer steps down, Sotomayor will become the senior most liberal member of the court. and No one doubts her ability to call out the majority's corruption of the law. So as to uh, who will replace Stephen Breyer, well, I suspect we will discuss that in more detail in the days ahead. (laughs) Oh, yes. Uh, But Stern notes that Breyer's announcement gives the White House ample time to select his successor, who he believes will likely be Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. 
and uh, that this uh, stepping down at the end of this term will afford the Senate months to confirm her. It also ensures that Democrats can replace Breyer while they retain control of the Senate, even if it will only serve to maintain the court's current six to three split between Republican and Democratic appointees. For the record, from what I know about 51-year-old Katanji Brown-Jackson, uh, she is a federal appellate judge. She once clerked for Stephen Breyer. She was appointed to a federal trial judgeship by President Barack Obama in 2013, was recently confirmed to the powerful U.S. Court of Appeals in D.C. under President Biden. She spent the bulk of her judicial career as a district judge on the U.S. District uh, Court for D.C., which hears an unusually large number of lawsuits alleging executive overreach. She's a former public defender who served as vice chair on the U.S. Sentencing United States Sentencing Commission from 2010 to 2014, a period a period in which the commission cut sentences significantly for many federal drug offenders. As an appellate judge, she also sat on a panel that the U.S. House investigation into the January 6th attack, well, that, that held that that uh, committee could, in fact, obtain certain White House records from the Trump administration despite Trump's objections, and that decision was subsequently upheld last week by the Supreme Court. So I know a lot of folks like her. We'll see if she is the chosen one. Uh, while there were only five black women on the federal bench, incredibly enough, when Biden took office, so not a lot to choose from, uh, he has since doubled that number to 10 in his first year. Uh, though, in truth, Biden doesn't need to only pick from that pool. Another top contender is said to be 45-year-old California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger. Uh, she is also a progressive, if arguably slightly less so than Katanji Jackson. Demand Justice Executive Director Brian Phelan said, quote, Justice Breyer's retirement is coming not a moment too soon, but now we must make sure our party remains united in support of confirming his successor. But of course, that brings us back to Lord Manchin and Lady Cinema and whatever new obstruction uh, that they hope to cause for Democrats and Joe Biden. By the way, among other names circulated as potential nominees, prominent civil rights lawyer Sherilyn Eiffel, uh, which would be pretty cool. And since we no longer have to worry about uh, getting Republicans on board here since they killed the filibuster, uh, it would be a lot easier to get Eiffel through, though, again, see Lord Manchin above. Also, U.S. District Judge M Michelle Childs, whom Biden nominated uh, to be an appeals court judge. She's a favorite of Congressman Jim Clyburn, uh, who made a crucial endorsement of Biden, you may recall, just before South Carolina's presidential primary in 2020. So she could get an upper hand there. It was in February of 2020, shortly before the South Carolina presidential primary, which Biden won after Clyburn's endorsement, reviving what had been a dead in the water candidacy up to that point. It was just before that that Biden said, quote, as president, I'd be honored to appoint the first African-American woman to the Supreme Court because it should look like the country. He said it's long past time. And since then, the White House has reiterated Biden's campaign pledge to appoint a black woman to the high court. Uh, so, yeah, we will uh, certainly return to all of this soon, I suspect. 
And before we get to my guest shortly, one more court-related story for the moment, if not the Supreme Court. But this is an update to a story that we covered a bit on this program yesterday. A federal judge in California late on Tuesday delivered a forceful defense of the January 6th Select Committee's efforts, sharply rejecting a bid by attorney John Eastman. He was the uh, key driver in Donald Trump's effort to steal the 2020 election by coming up with uh, these memos claiming that Vice President Pence could simply refuse to uh, uh, to confirm the the electoral college results on January 6th. Well, attorney John Eastman uh, had sued to block a subpoena by the House Select Committee to his former employer, Chapman University. Uh, the panel, the uh, the House committee was seeking some 19,000 emails from Eastman's university email account where um, that were you know sent from that address or to that address while he was working unbeknownst to Chapman University on the Trump campaign. Judge David Carter on Tuesday night in a 16 page ruling rejected Eastman's attempt to scuttle that subpoena for thousands of pages of his emails. The public interest here is weighty and urgent. The judge said Congress seeks to understand the cause of a grave attack on our nation's democracy and a near successful attempt to subvert the will of voters. Judge Carter said Eastman's efforts to stoke distrust of the election could reasonably be considered a, quote, influencing factor for some of those who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. He said he would entertain claims of attorney-client privilege for specific documents, but would reject Eastman's blanket attempt to stymie the select committee from receiving the bulk of those emails. The ruling is one of the most consequential yet for the January 6th committee. They are fending off nearly a dozen lawsuits by Trumpers, Trump allies seeking to upend subpoenas for their testimony, for documents, for phone records. But, uh, you know, they keep losing these cases. Last week, the January 6th committee won the major victory at the Supreme Court, which declined to hear Trump's own lawsuit to prevent the committee from obtaining his White House records, effectively delivering the panel hundreds of sensitive pages. So, yeah, these guys just keep losing in court under Trump judges and others. Regarding both the January 6th attack on the Capitol and, of course, their 60 or so attempts to challenge the results themselves of the 2020 election. They're running into what appears to be a hard brick wall in the court system, you know, where actual evidence and stuff still, at least for the most part, reigns supreme versus lies and phony claims of fraud and being victimized by law enforcement and congressional committees who are trying to get to the truth of what happened on January 6th. And maybe, just maybe, some accountability for its perpetrators, including, if we can take Attorney General Merrick Garland's word for it, anyone who was involved, no matter how high the office. We shall see about that. But more good news for fans of accountability out of a federal courtroom in California on Tuesday night. But of course, with all of those court losses, the MAGA mob is trying to prevent the need to have to, you know, go to courts and stuff when they want to steal an election. 
And their plan for that, well, that's next on the broadcast. And we will also be joined by someone with a plan for how to counter the authoritarians' plans to steal elections. And it's something that you, yes, you, can actually take a part of. All of that is ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The Democratic Association of Secretaries of State and its affiliated groups raised $4.5 million last year. That is a record haul for the group and the latest indication of the heightened interest in once sleepy down-ballot races for state election chiefs, which I never consider to be down-ballot races, but... Apparently CNN did, and they're now <laughs> noticing, oh, people actually care about these things. These things are kind of important. Yeah. Boy, howdy, not anymore are they sleepy. Not now that the Trumpers realized that they can steal presidential elections if they can seat one of their owns in that job in a uh, in a key state. The fundraising total shared first with CNN is three times what the organizations collected during the, the entire 2018 election cycle. Wow, three times. And uh, Kim Rogers, its executive director, said the group and its affiliates are on track to bring in 15 million for the 2022 election cycle, 10 times what it collected four years ago. Rogers called Democratic secretaries of state, quote, the last line of defense for democracy. I'd say the public is, but uh, in any event, that as Republicans in key battlegrounds enact measures that could make it harder to vote and press ahead with ridiculous partisan reviews of 2020's election results still. Uh, the failure to advance federal voting protections in the U.S. Senate last week will drive, quote, and will drive, quote, even greater attention to the states, said Rogers. Secretaries of state serve in most places as the top election administrators, helping set voting procedures, often playing a role in the final certification of results. Voters in more than half of the states will pick election chiefs this year. So, yeah, if you usually set out midterm elections, how about not doing that this year? Yes, please don't. Please get out to vote. That's always good. <sighs> Former President Trump's relentless and unsuccessful efforts to overturn CNN means steal the 2020 election have put a spotlight on these posts like never before in Georgia. The former president has endorsed Congressman Jody Heiss in a Republican primary against the sitting Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who resisted Trump's pressure to find, quote, find the votes needed to overturn Biden's victory in uh, in Georgia in 2020. Trump loyalists are also seeking the top elections jobs in Arizona and Michigan to other states that Biden flipped. 
that will once again be absolutely key in 2024, no matter whether Trump is on the ballot or in jail or both by that point, as the case may be. In Arizona, recently filed fundraising reports underscore the interest among donors in these contests. Democratic and Republican candidates for secretary of state report a combined 2.2 million in total receipts in 2021 in Arizona alone. That's more than three times what all candidates for state elections chief in all states had collected at that point in the last election cycle. But while the fundraising hall for Democratic, the Democratic associates, associations of secretaries of state might be good news for them, the National Republican group focused on secretaries of state uh, is also raising huge sums. In fact, much huger than Democrats. While the Democratic groups raised $4.5 million last year, the Republican State Leadership Council and an affiliated group, the State Government Leadership Foundation, recently announced bringing in $33.3 million in 2021. Wow. Don't freak out. The bulk of that money is actually spent on other state legislative races, but officials say they will use that money to direct to Secretary of State fights this year. The group's spokesperson said national liberals are ramping up their investments and the uh, RSLC is quote, focused on continuing to accelerate our fundraising efforts so we can stop them. But secretaries of state are not the only election officials who play a key role in American elections. There are literally thousands of elected positions that are absolutely critical to fill with folks who actually believe not in Democrats, but in democracy. And we have a guest that has been wildly effective in filling some of those roles over the past two election cycles and has a plan for doing so again, big time in 2022 and 2023 and beyond. Amanda Littman from Run For Something joins us next to explain on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Desi. The Bradcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Headed for the open door. Oh, I hope so. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. In their book, Dictators and Democrats, political scientists Stephen Haggard and Robert Kaufman analyze what causes countries to transition from democracy to autocracy and vice versa. One of their core findings is that when a democracy is tottering, laws provide less of a bulwark on their own than most people think. Rules need people to help enforce them. When it comes to democracy, one of the law's best guarantors are the citizens themselves. Of course, we have long, uh, pushing on two decades now, both here on the Bradcast and at bradblog.com, uh, have highlighted how it is transparency and public 
oversight of elections as the really the only thing that ultimately ensures legitimate elections. The key to nearly every effective election subversion strategy, Haggard and Kaufman go on to explain, according to Vox.com's Zach Bouchamp, is control over institutions. When Trumpists, for example, are in positions of power, they get to set the rules of the game. If Democrats, nonpartisan actors, or principled Republicans hold key jobs as they did in 2020, the Trumpists cannot break the system. So in 2022, as Bouchamp notes, many of the biggest fights for democracy are hyper-local. Races for county executive, judgeships, election administration positions, and state houses. If pro-democracy candidates can win these races in large numbers, he contends, they will collectively pose a significant barrier to an election subversion campaign in 2024. According to research from the database Insurrection Index, 222 people who participated in the January 6th Capitol attack are either elected officials or currently running for office. Hundreds more local Republican Party leaders and influential stakeholders enabled or encouraged the riot. And since that day, those same people and their networks have redirected their anger at local governments, protesting school boards, city councils, county health boards and other local officials. Amanda Littman warned about this earlier this month in, of all places, L magazine. As one protester told NBC News, she notes, quote, we figured we figured out that going to the Capitol and working that particular piece doesn't do anything because these legislators have already made up their mind. It's all about local legis legislation. The protester noted your local school districts, your city council board of supervisors. These people live in our community. They work here and they're going to have to face us every single day. Far-right extremists like QAnon followers, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, along with Trump acolytes and Steve Bannon enthusiasts, are focusing all of their energy now on local government, argues Littman, adding that they're not even being secret about it. On the top of a QAnon forum, for example, there was a direct message encouraging supporters to run for local office. On Steve Bannon's podcast each week, he encourages his listeners to get engaged locally, especially for positions that help administer elections. Well, that's hardly a surprise. Donald Trump rather publicly has called for a focus on filling local election administrator positions with his own loyalists, as referenced in this recent remark, for example, to Pennsylvania State GOPers earlier this month. It'll be a lot sharper the next time when it comes to counting the vote. There's a famous statement, sometimes the vote counter is more important than the candidate, and we can't let that ever, ever happen again. They have to get tougher and smarter. Now, a uh, mangled famous statement there aside, Trump's message for is for his supporters to take over elections, local and state elections process itself. So the ability to steal the next election, whether in 2022 or in his case, 2024, will already be baked into the administrative cake. 
with loyalist right-wing election officials more likely to take the actions needed, lawful or otherwise, to change results or make more claims of phony fraud or make it harder for voters to vote in order to flip election results and, yes, steal elections amid what is left of our American democracy. CNN's Jake Tapper recently explained the broad right-wing effort and the various ways that it is moving forward already. Now, this plan to put loyalists in key positions where they can do this for him is going on right now with Trump-backed candidates for governor, secretary of state, and more in key states. And there are also more organic, lower-level efforts as well for adherents of the big lie to slip into key posts. Edward McAlanis of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, was running for local judge of elections until his campaign hit something of a snag. He was charged with four offenses related to his role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. He entered into a plea deal. In Pennsylvania, January 6th rally attendee Stephen Lindemuth, who has not been charged with a crime, won his race to be the Mount Joy Township judge of elections. But, of course, it is not only elections themselves in the sights of these far-right-wingers, as Littman explains. These people are trying to build long-term sustainable power from the ground up. Once they take over school boards and city councils, they can determine what kids learn, how towns are governed, and ultimately rewrite the rules to ensure no pro-democracy leader can win national power again, let alone a leader who cares about things like raising the minimum wage, accessible health care, affordable child care, reproductive health access, LGBTQIA plus equality, racial justice, or anything else that might make life better for so many people. You might be feeling hopeless, she writes, perhaps directly to the listeners of this program, like nothing can be done to stop the onslaught of extremism, and it's all out of our control. Well, it does feel that way at times. It's hard to see how one person, she says, can take on this big, messy, monstrous movement. Hell, it's hard to see how even the United States government in its current makeup can stop it. The far right is trying to win big by winning small, she notes, but pro-democracy forces can win big by winning small as well. She argues we can and we must. And yes, she has an actual practical plan for that. A plan that, yes, you can take part in. Joining us now to explain that plan is Amanda Littman, co-founder and executive director of Run for Something. .net, which recruits and supports young, diverse progressives to run for local office. Amanda Littman, we were uh, joined by your part, uh, your uh, your partnering co-founder, Ross Morales Rocchetto, back in 2017 in advance of the 2018 midterm elections to talk about similar matters. So we are delighted to finally have you here to join us today on the broadcast. I am so glad to be here. I think you just laid out the problem so, so well. So I am excited to talk about the solution. Exactly, the solution. Now, I, I want to focus uh, on, on that solution and your effort to sort of uh, counter what we're seeing on the right, specifically to fill election administration positions, since we cover that and all things related to democracy quite a bit on this program. But your group was very successful in your efforts in both 2018 and 2020. Tell me about some of those successes just to sort of help shore up your, your bona fides here on this matter? 
Of course. So since Run for Something launched in 2017, we have helped elect 637 people across 48 states, mm. mostly women, mostly people of color, about a fifth LGBTQIA+, all 40 years old and younger. Um, they have done things like expand early voting here in New York, where I live. They've helped 50,000 Floridians access unemployment benefits down in Orlando, thanks to Representative Anna Eskamani. The Waterloo City Council in Iowa now has a paid leave policy for people experiencing pregnancy loss, thanks to Jonathan Greider, one of the city council members there. Um, in Harris County, Texas, they 10x the election administration budget, um, have ended cash bail, uh, and did a number of really important things around budgeting, thanks to Judge Lena Hidalgo, the Harris County Executive, and yeah. Harris County Attorney Christian Menefee. So we have seen over and over again, young people can run, they can win, they can make a difference on the local level that makes life so much better for people in a way that really matters. Now, uh, and Lena Hidalgo is great. So if you had mm -hmm. any hand in helping her get into office, thank you for that alone. Uh, but uh, primary elections now for the midterms, are, are they're coming up around the nation now in a matter of months. The first is, speaking of Texas, uh, the first is in March in Texas, I believe, for the midterms. But there are local elections uh, even next month, for example, in Wisconsin. So the election year is already underway in many places. Is it too late for folks to consider running for office now in 2022? It is not. Well, in some states, in Texas in particular, the filing deadline, filing deadline has already passed for 2022. Um, I want to make sure that folks know it is not too late to get started for this year. Um, most states have their filing deadlines in March, April, May. Even if you are just now thinking, maybe I want to do this, especially for these local elections, you can run. We will help you get your campaign set up. We'll help you figure out how to get on the ballot. And we'll make sure that you have everything you need to succeed. Now, I want to talk about that process in a little bit. But the right, in the meantime, is focusing, uh, as as you noted, on local races, school boards, city and, and county governments and so forth. But they've had a particular focus on election administration positions. That in the wake of their failed attempt to steal the 2020 election. Now, as I understand, run for something has launched a multi-million dollar effort to uh, contest positions that, quote, relate to local election work. A, a, a direct effort, I guess, to fight back against the election subversion on the right. So what does that effort specifically entail? How are you specifically focusing on election administrations this year to counter the, uh, the effort on the right? Well, this, I think, is one of the most important things we're doing, not just for Run for Something as an organization, but for our democracy. Um, so we're partnering with a whole bunch of organizations to identify some of the key races where the worst offenders control election administration. Uh, we want to make sure that in places that we can, that the city clerk or county clerk or county recorder of deeds or, or the you know, tax assessor, whatever position it is that controls election administration, um, is someone who cares about democracy, who's going to do it fairly and freely. And that doesn't necessarily mean a Democrat, doesn't necessarily mean someone who shares our values on every issue, but this needs to be someone who believes that every vote should be counted, that everyone should have access to the polls, um, and that we shouldn't be rigging these elections before they even occur. Um, so we're doing a whole bunch of targeted work there, and then making sure that in the nearly 2,000 races like these across the country this year, we've got as many candidates as possible. Did, did you say 2,000 races across the country for election positions? That's right. There's at least 2,000 of them that touch elections in some way on the ballot in 2022, another 1,000 in 2023, and close to 4,000 of them on the ballot in 2024. Wow. Now, if to be fair here, if one would uh, charge 
as as you sort of heard me do in that in that uh, introduction there, if one would charge that the right is loading up these uh, usually nonpartisan administrative election positions with right wing, you know, Republican Trump backing loyalists in order to game elections. What is your response, Amanda Lippman, to the charge that your effort to fill those positions with progressives is, in fact, an effort to do the very same thing, but, you know, in favor of Democrats? Well, we're not in favor of Democrats. We're in favor of democracy, and I think that's a really important distinction. Sometimes when more people vote, Republicans do win. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when the votes are fairly counted, Republicans win. We want to make sure that the process of our elections is as fair and free and as trustworthy and as transparent as possible. And hopefully that effort can come from either party. Now, we haven't seen that to be true in quite some time, but we would like for it to be so. Um, I would never say this is a both sides issue. You know, we're trying to make sure democracy is protected Mm -hmm. and ensured and and stronger moving forward. And what would you say to, uh, because I know you reach out to a lot of folks who have never even considered running for office. What, what, what would you say to someone, for example, who you know follows the news intensely, who reads their Twitter feeds and their Facebook feeds every day to sort of keep up with politics, and they become enraged by what they are seeing and reading every day, both nationally and in their hometowns, but you know they, they already have a job, they have no particular background in government or political science or law degree, etc., and they've never even considered actually running for office, why might they be a person, and again, you know, perhaps someone listening to this show right now, why might they be a person who should uh, consider running for office right now? You know, there's more than half a million offices in the United States, and each one of them does something really critical for the day-to-day quality of life for so many Americans. You think about the school board to determine whether our schools are open or closed or what kind of curriculum we're teaching, what kind of books are available. You think about a library board that determines, are there computers? What times are they open? Are they running classes for people who want to become citizens? Again, what kind of books are available in our libraries? Mm -hmm. You think about mosquito abatement districts in Florida where they're controlling mosquito populations. That's really important for the quality of life for folks. Mm -hmm. Think about coroners. There are more than 1,300 counties in the United States that elect coroners which seems like kind of a weird issue. But until you think about the pandemic, where we had coroners making really critical decisions about what went on a death certificate, which then affects a whole bunch of you know, subsequent mm-hmm. decisions about crime and safety and the pandemic and all of that. So these positions are small, but they are meaningful. They make a big difference. And I think we need good people in them. We need people from all walks of life. We need folks, yes, who are lawyers and businessmen and whatever. We need more of them, too. But really... We need teachers, we need parents, we need artists, we need scientists, we need refugees, we need first and second generation Americans, we need Chipotle burrito rollers and people who've worked in fast food and retail. You know, our government will work better when it reflects the people it's trying to serve. So we need you to run. If you're listening to this, we need you to run. So these are people, I kind of want to focus on this point for a moment, because these are people, you know, that are not trained in political science or law. You're suggesting in a lot of the positions that you sort of name there, these are things that nobody has gone to school for, right? That there is not a particular degree in how to be on the school school board or, or the city council to decide on the you know, the mosquito spraying schedule and so forth? Um, I think it's really important to know that these elections are happening all the time. Uh, They are year-round. They are determined in some places by a really small number of voters, and they are affordable. 
You know, 75% of school board races, at least in years past, cost $1,000 or less. 85% cost $5,000 or less. It's totally attainable for someone who's never run for office before to run for and win one of these positions. And how does uh, runforsomething.net actually help them? What process do you go through in, in determining who might be a candidate that you could help and, and or support and or advise them on which elected positions, for example, that they might consider running for? Well, if you go to runforwhat.net and you sign up, you can look up the offices available for you to run for in 2022. You'll then get invited to a conference call. We'll answer all of the questions you might have first time out. You'll then talk to one of our volunteers who will answer some more questions and we'll learn a little bit more about your situation. Then you will get access to things like guides on how to file to get on the ballot, trainings from us and our partners. Uh, we have a network of people all across the country who want to help you. Maybe they're designers and developers or housing experts. They're here to support you as a candidate for free. Then you can apply for the Run for Something endorsement. If we endorse you, you'll get time with our staff. You might get money. You might get attention from the press or from other organizations. And then win or lose after Election Day, we will be by your side. That is, uh, again, that's runforwhat.net, where you can, uh, and I, I checked it out. It's a very cool tool. It takes about 30 seconds to fill out. <laughs> you let them know where you live, et cetera, and your contact information. And essentially, it's a process to determining what's available uh, to run for in your hometown? Is, th is that sort of the information you'll be able to glean from this? That's exactly right. You'll enter your name and your address, and it'll show you what's on the ballot for you to run for in 2022. Now, what about someone like me? Not me, but someone like me. An older, not old, but older, a very progressive white guy who has never run for office but may not necessarily be a fit for the type of candidate that your group tends to, to back, uh, younger minorities, women. To be clear, I personally have no intention uh, at this time of running for anything, but if I did, would your group be able to help someone like me, at least by putting me in touch with perhaps other groups who might be able to help me do the same thing if I you know, didn't necessarily fit the profile, the type of, the folks, uh, the type of folks that you guys are looking for at uh, Run For Something? exactly what we would do. You know, we think everybody, including you, should think about running for office. Now, we're not necessarily the right group for everybody. That doesn't mean we don't think they should engage. So if you sign up and you maybe don't meet Run for Something criteria, you're not quite part of our target demographic, that's totally okay. We'll redirect you to partners who can help you uh, and make sure that you have what you need to, to get started at the very least. So e even if I don't fit that profile, going to runforwhat.net or runforsomething.net is a good way to get, get pointed in the right direction anyway. That's exactly right. Now, you've had, as discussed, notable success at Run For Something in previous years. I'm wondering how things are shaping up for the group this year. Are you hearing from... What are you seeing are, are, that is different in any way? Are you hearing from more people, fewer, different types of people? Anything different from previous years, given the extraordinary events of the past 12-plus uh, months following, following the uh, 2020 attack on, on democracy itself? You know, we thought this year would maybe be a little harder to recruit candidates to run, that it might be a little trickier. January 2022 has been by far our best recruitment month yet. Nearly 10,000 young people have signed up to run just in the last three and a half weeks. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's yeah. really telling that the death of democracy forum in Congress, the, the conversations around QAnon and the far-right extremists running for local office, you know, the need to make sure that good people are in charge locally, especially when we can't count on progress nationally, mm -hmm. has really reinforced for people 
this is the next step, and this is the final place we get a chance to fight for our values. And I know with that focus, that specific focus on election ad- administration, are you are are you finding more people specifically interested in that? Are you needing to funnel them yourself into those positions? It's a little bit of both. You know, we are finding more people. We're connecting them to the right offices. A lot of folks don't even know these are positions that are available to them. So we're making sure that they understand what these do and how they can play a part in protecting democracy. Um, we are doing everything we can to ensure that. In these races, there is a candidate that voters can pick who cares about protecting democracy. What is the uh, bigger problem, Amanda Littman, at Run for Something? Is it finding the right people? Is it finding enough of the uh, the, the right people? Or is it uh, funding the entire effort, in fact, that is the toughest? You know, I think for us, the thing that keeps me up at night is making sure that we have enough money to pay enough staff to talk to every person who wants to run. There is such a clear demand for the services that Run for Something provides. There is obviously so much interest in even thinking about maybe one day running for local office. And we want to talk to as many of those folks as we can and help them personally, and that requires money. So we're trying to raise as much as we can to grow our staff and grow our capacities so we can support these amazing candidates. Which I assume can also be done via runforsomething.net, even if you're not considering running for office, even if maybe you should. But So you are finding a, a, a lot of people. You're, you're getting uh, p- plenty of people, so to speak, uh, to fill these thousands of jobs that you're, you're looking at. We are trying, and we're going to yeah. keep doing it. We're going to go everywhere we can, talk to every person we can, and make sure that everyone knows you can and should think about running for office, and your democracy needs you. You know, I love how you conclude your article at Elle magazine. Uh, You write, quote, this is a make or break moment for our democracy, and it might feel like there's no cavalry coming to save us. See it as an opportunity, you advise. We are the cavalry and we have to save ourselves. You know, one of the things I have learned over my years of covering politics, uh, one, one of the really one of the revelations for me is that, you know, the average person sort of thinks there is someone out there, there someone in D.C. or in local government whose job it is to take care of all of this, to take care of all of these problems, to, in fact, save us all somehow. But, you know, when you cover this stuff, and, and I know you, you were, uh, you know, in, in politics yourself, uh, and, and so you know this as well as anybody, but when you cover this stuff, you come to learn that those people who are in positions of power right now, frankly, really aren't anything special. They don't have any particular <laughs> superpowers. Uh, they are just folks. They are Americans who decided to step up and, if you will, run for something. That's exactly right. It is, I think, you know, it's, it's a scary opportunity. It's an incredible opportunity, and it's a chance to make sure that the government works for the people it should, which is more than just rich, old, white men, mostly lawyers. It's people who care. Yeah, I mean... I really I mean, that's, you know, whenever I uh, speak with a politician and high ranking politicians, I'm always moved by, you know, there's nothing special about them. They're normal people. And I don't mean that as an insult. It's just that they're normal people. And a lot of times we'll have conversations and they'll start asking me questions uh-huh. because they just don't know. You know, there's an old saying that the world is run by those who show up. So this helps you show up for your community and for your democracy. Amanda Littman, I really hope you will stay in touch with us as the year progresses, because especially as we can help your efforts, frankly, both this year and, of course, when you fire back up in 2023. 
And I think that's one point that uh, you you have underscored uh, in your articles and when I've seen you talk. There are important off-year elections as well in almost every state. I think some people are proud when they even notice that there's midterm elections, but we have elections pretty much every year, particularly on the local level, no? That's right. We have elections all the time, year in, year out. I have read at some point there's at least a school board election going on something like 50 weeks out of the year. There is always a chance for someone to be voting on something. So you never know. Maybe in your community you could be on the ballot as soon as a couple months from now. And if it's an election, something runforsomething.net, it sounds like an election at any level uh, can help you get involved in it. So, yes, please do stay in touch, of course, as we move forward and, of course, into 2024. Thank you for what you guys are doing. I think it's absolutely critical frankly, to the survival of American democracy. Oh, thank you, and thanks for letting me tell our story. Amanda Littman can, and her work can, of course, be found at runforsomething.net. If you want to find out what you might be able to run for, you should go to runforwhat.net, and you'll find out. You can also uh, follow them on the Twitters at runforsomething, and you can follow Amanda there as well. She is Amanda Littman. Amanda Littman, Uh, founder of Run for Something and executive director. Really appreciate you joining us today. Of course. Thanks. She is. Uh, she's fantastic. Yes, she, she's very cl- clear and to the point. Yeah, as was her uh, her co director uh, Ross Morales Riquetto back in uh, in 2017. These guys know what they're doing, and uh, I think they've really hit on something. And I, I think she had worked, if I remember, she had worked for Hillary Clinton, perhaps in uh, in 2016. Was frustrated by the results of that election. I don't understand why. <laughs> But uh, said, what can we do about it? And really, the answer is getting people to run for something. Yeah, to even consider the idea that, hey, maybe, you know, there's some small races that don't require all of your time that are crucial for your local community's health and safety. I mean, never assume that somebody else is going to do it, I think, is their point. You know, that somebody else is going to step up into these positions because America needs all of us to show up. Cool. What are you running for? (laughs) Running for the door, I guess, <laughs> at this point. Okay, I'm running for the door, too. we got to get <laughs> yes. out. Uh, my thanks, of course, to Amanda Littman, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it, share it with your friends and family and enemies anytime you like. You can download it for free at bradblog.com. All made possible by you folks who uh, stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us help us celebrate our 18th anniversary this week of bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Brad Blog. We'll see you there. Till we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>